Welcome to the Glenn Mercer Show, where we talk all things vegan. If you're not already vegan, no worries, we'll get you there. If you are, tune in for health advice, information on climate change, and all the damage done by our most destructive industry, animal agriculture. We'll also talk cooking, theater, film, and culture. My two reasons for starting this podcast, to entertain, to inform, and to make people vegan. Oh, that's three. Shit. Hello and welcome to the Glenn Mercer Show. Find us across all your major podcast platforms at realmeneatplants.com and at the Glenn Mercer Show on YouTube. Please remember to subscribe. We're trying to get to 2 million subscribers. We're a little bit shy. When we get to 2 million subscribers, that'll be very good for the vegans. Okay. Um, my very special guest today is my dear friend, Dr. Silish Rao. Silish has a PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford University. He is actually, believe it or not, one of the people responsible for the high-speed internet that we enjoy today and that, in fact, I'm using today. Thank you for that, Silish. Um, <laughs> And uh, Silish is also the founder of climatehealers.org. So go there and check out all the important information at that site. And Silish is the author of one of the most important papers of our century. It's called Animal Agriculture is the Leading Cause of Climate Change. It was published in the peer-reviewed Journal of Ecological Society in 2021. Silish, welcome to the show. Thank you, Glenn. I'm really glad to see you today because I need some optimism. There's something I'm getting pessimistic about, and you are my go-to guy for optimism. So uh, we will get to that later. But first, let's let our listeners learn more about you. Tell us where you're from in India. I was born in Mangalore, which is on the western coast of India, and I was raised in Chennai, which is on the eastern coast of India. Now, you were raised in a vegetarian family, right? That is correct, yes. And My parents are vegetarian, yeah. In that area at that time, in that city at that time, what percentage of people would you estimate were vegetarians? Uh, I would say in Chennai, at least half were vegetarian. Uh, it was very common, you know, it's like most of my classmates were vegetarian uh -huh. when I went to school. And today, is it more or less vegetarian than it was then it's less vegetarian than it used to be so a lot more people are eating meat so but then i also going... realized that you know eating eating dairy is also to me the same as eating meat right it's just liquid meat <laughs> right. um what what is it that you think has caused India to backslide on this when there are less vegetarians, at least as a percentage of the population, than there were then? It's so-called development and um, all these multinational companies coming in and persuading people to eat this way. So I think that started in the 90s. It became like a big trend. And uh, now people are beginning to see the impact of that. So that's why I have and uh, you know, a great deal of faith that this is going to change very quickly because people are associating their ill health with the changes that happened. Is heart disease on the upswing in India? Oh yes, India. I think has you know, Indians have this special characteristic that we um, we tend to store fat in our arteries very well. So Indians have so-called toffee bodies, thin outside, fat inside. Um, and so uh, I think it's also a, a genetic selection that happened during the colonial era because uh, in the colonial era between 1800 and 1940, India went through about 14 different famines. And it's estimated anywhere from 40 million to 100 million people died during those famines. And so those who survived were the ones who could store fat and you oh. know, use it for a rainy day, so to speak, right? 
Right. And so, uh, so this is why we are genetically selected to store fat in our bodies. And that's on the inside of your body as well as the outside. Right. <clears throat> in, the artery. In, a, in the Well, it's everywhere. We're storing it, you know, I mean, it's easy for us to store fat. That's, let me put it that way. And yeah. we also have narrower arteries compared to uh, the Europeans, I think. So this is why uh, Indians, there's an estimate that among cardiac patients, half of us, half the cardiac patients are Indians. Half of the cardiac patients in the world? Mm, are Indians. Even though wow. we are one-sixth or so of the human population. Man, talk half. about being overachievers. I know. Yeah, but it's also waking us up faster, right? Because, uh, I mean, because of our um, genetic predispositions, we are waking up faster. So is obesity becoming a problem in India? Yeah, obesity is becoming a problem. See, when I was growing up, there were hardly anyone who was obese. I mean, it's like very rare. And we used to make fun of those kids, remember? <laughs> but they were like one or two kids. Now, if you call them that name, you know, lots of kids are going to open. <laughs> so are you referring to me? <laughs> right? So it's it's become so common that way. Right? Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're in the same age range in our 60s. And right. it's the same with me. And when I was a kid, there were very few obese kids. Right. Uh, yeah. And when I went to college, hardly anyone was obese. And now I live in a college town and uh, there was a new fried chicken place that opened downtown. And I saw this long line of obese college students. Mm. And I, I wonder, do they not realize that it's what they're eating that is doing this, that it's they're eating all this fat? I mean, you would think it's in the word. Eating fat makes you fat. Why is it so difficult for people to put this together? Well, people get uh, used to the, doing things a certain way, you know, and then they they keep doing it until something happens that makes them wake up and say, oh, maybe this is too destructive. So we don't know what that is. For different people, yeah. there are different things that happen. I mean, you well, and I are lucky that, you know, we, we listen to signals and we change immediately. Like you anticipated a signal and you changed, right? Yeah, I went vegetarian at 17, but stupidly I continued to eat cheese because people made me worry about protein. Uh, and I foolishly listened to them. So I ate one animal product between 17 and my early 30s, which was cheese. Mm. And, uh, and then I started to feel pains around my chest, which I'm guessing was the start of heart disease. I, n I never went to the doctor to check it out. Instead of going to the doctor, I thought about it. And I thought, well, I'm not eating meat because of the saturated fat and the cholesterol. And what is cheese but saturated fat and cholesterol? As I said before, it's liquid meat. Right. So uh, when I gave that up, I never had the pains again. And I never went to a doctor to check it out. So I can't confirm that I was getting heart disease. But I certainly think that's what it was. Uh, but you also, um, as a vegetarian, you grew up having dairy. Did right. you have it in the form of uh, cheese and butter? And uh, did you have ghee? What, what kind of uh, dairy did you have? You have to understand that when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, dairy was rare. I mean, we, we ate it, uh, but... We we had to go and stand in line in a you know at at a ration shop and collect our daily ration of milk. Huh. Okay, so uh, only when I went to my grandparents' home that we had more dairy to consume than um, in the city. So cheese was so rare. I mean, I don't remember eating cheese at all. I mean, maybe once or something I ate cheese. Uh, it was so rare. Because you're taking all this milk and and condensing it to cheese, right? I mean, people are using the milk for their coffee or their tea, and they prefer that as opposed to uh, collecting it and using it for cheese. So that's how it was, you know, when I was growing up. So when you were 
growing up then mainly it was just milk you were drinking milk right milk and, and how much yogurt yogurt we used to make yogurt. yogurt out of the milk yeah so how um, much milk and yogurt was part of your diet yogurt was every day so we used to take a little bit of yogurt at the end of every meal supposedly mm -hmm. to cool our bodies and later on i discovered that it was actually causing my inflammation <laughs> this is the opposite of what i was thinking it was doing uh but yeah supposedly cool our bodies and then um i mean cheese was absolutely rare butter was also rare you know butter and mm -hmm. ghee were rare and we used to uh, only use that during festivals okay right? so that's how it was when i was growing up and in fact it was that's how it was when i left india in 1981 and um, when you left and came to the states how did your mm -hmm. diet change well i mean uh, when i landed in washington dc and i was like really hungry the only thing that was open was a burger king so i was like i mean uh, my flight landed late and and then my connecting flight had gone and they just said you know it's not our fault so you figure it out on your own and i was in this new country <laughs> you know so i found a railways bus that could take me to my destination and i had like a hundred dollars in cash that's all i had <laughs> so i used that to buy it buy some food at burger king and um you had a burger and, and i had a burger and i and i had a and i basically got a bus ticket out of it and got to my brother's place where i could get some more funds you know <laughs> to do other things <laughs> was that the first meat you had had in your life when you had that burger um i had tasted before but this was the first substantial meal yeah yeah and so what was your reaction to eating that burger well you know i mean it wasn't uh, it wasn't i mean it just filled my hunger right it mm -hmm. satisfied my hunger but other than that i don't even remember much of it yeah 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 it's and not descriptive um, to me mm. and then as you lived in america did you start eating cheese more and and other animal yeah. products i got hooked on pizza <laughs> cheese pizza <laughs> and uh, uh to me that was a, a great meal to have a cheese pizza right so especially in school uh, when i was going to university um then you know i was eating meat uh, i mean i wasn't i never cooked meat at home most of the time i was eating at home because as a poor student you don't go out and eat so much you know you're mostly cooking right. at home at home i was cooking vegan food mostly okay so but i was still making yogurt and things like that um but uh, when i go out i used to try okay i used to eat meat and until my mother came to visit one time and she said why are you eating that didn't i did i raise you to eat that and so i then i said okay i'm sorry mom um, i'm i'm going to stop so i stopped it okay um but it's it's only after i discovered the impact on the environment that i gave up my dairy until then i was making excuses for my dairy consumption saying hey even if they are not treating the cows well here in the us they treat the cows very well in india you know <laughs> so we know how to do it right uh, things like that and so you were uh, eating dairy here because you thought that the cows there were being treated well. exactly i mean not, imagine that's that that's not right? quite as rational as you usually are exactly i know uh, yeah. so irrational about that yeah so this is why so, i have tremendous sympathy for people who who come up with creative excuses for continuing their consumption <laughs> because yeah. i used to do that so when did you come across the information that animal agriculture was destroying the planet and that therefore you needed to give up dairy i would say starting in 2006 when say 2005 is when i saw al gore's presentation on tv and i was really shocked by that presentation so then i um i stopped working on the internet and i started focusing on the environment full time and i was i was reading all these papers on the environment and i could see that there's a tremendous amount of land being used for raising animals and so 
I had this suspicion that, that that land use is a major reason for climate change. Okay, I didn't know exactly at that time, uh, but I had this suspicion. So this is why I asked the question uh, during the training that I got from Al Gore. So I was part of the second batch that he trained. And uh, he started training people in the thing in August or September of 2006. Right. So the first batch, I think, was September. Mine was the second batch, which was November. And this is what has become Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, right? That's correct, yeah. The, yeah. the slideshow that became an inconvenient truth, and he wanted people to disseminate that slideshow. Correct, yeah. So that was, uh, in fact, that was the agreement, you know, when I, he said, come for training to Nashville. And I went to Nashville to get my training and I had to sign something saying, I will, I will deliver that. I'll give that presentation at least 10 times within the next year, something like that. Yeah. So I had to sign mm -hmm. an agreement like that to get trained by him. And when so you I, gave the presentation, this was before Zoom, where did hmm. you go to give these presentations? So it was in our local area. So we would go to schools. So we would, you know, solicit presentations at schools or community centers and places like that. So now when you gave the presentations, were you thinking, this is leaving something out? Yeah. Animal agriculture. I was thinking that. Okay. Even during yeah. the training, I asked him the question, you know, about uh, yeah. animal agriculture. And he's kind of sidestepped it. And I thought, so I have to study this more, you know. So... Maybe he's right and I need to look at it more. So I was continuing to do my research and it's only in 2008. So two years later. Because, you know, the way people do the calculations about the impact of dairy, uh, it looks like dairy is, has very little impact. I mean, it's just slightly worse than going vegan, right? Eating dairy. That's the way it's being calculated. Because you know, the cow lives for five years and you're extracting dairy from her every day. So it's not much of an impact, right? So that's how it was being framed to me. And uh, as a systems engineer, I know about local sensitivity analysis and global sensitivity analysis. And, you know, and I know that in a local sensitivity analysis, you can get fooled into going along with something. Whereas a global sensitivity analysis will reveal the true picture. So I knew that too. And it's only in 2008 I realized that all the papers were doing a local sensitivity analysis. And, and, and am I correct, therefore, that in a local sensitivity analysis, you don't question all the assumptions? You don't you question the, the situation. You just say the situation is the way it is. And then you say, if I right. make one, one small incremental change, right. what impact does that have? Right? Right. So the then, way you go ahead. go ahead. No, the go way ahead. you would analyze for dairy, the way they were analyzing for dairy is that everyone is eating meat, everyone is eating dairy. Now, if one person stops eating dairy, what is the impact of that? Right. <laughs> well, not much because everybody else is eating the beef, you know. So uh, that's the kind of analysis that's, that's being done. So it's a matter of assigning responsibility for raising the cow to the beef consumer, the leather consumer, the you know the the consumer of glue, you know from the hoof of the animal. So you are assigning these responsibilities, you know, the impact of the cow to different people like that, and then saying, okay, dairy is just a little part of it, right? right. And that's how they do the local sensitivity analysis. Ooh, so right. and this and this is really at the essence of the reason why you and I and a growing number of dissenters, we can say, uh, in, in the climate debate, mm. make the point that the leading cause of climate change is really animal agriculture, because right. we are questioning the assumption mm. that land use has to be accepted. Right. If you accept that we need to use 37% of the non-ice land surface of the earth to graze animals, and if you accept that we need to use another 6% of the earth to grow food for those animals, and if you accept that humans must eat meat and dairy and that we must do this, then Al Gore is right.
the leading cause of climate change is fossil fuels because we must eat meat and we must eat dairy and we must use half the earth for this and we must race, rape the oceans and we must destroy the oceans and we must deplete all the uh, animal life from the oceans, all the fish and all the mammals in the ocean. If you, if, if you make those assumptions, then he's right because that just leaves the burning of fossil fuels. But we question that assumption. Right. We we say no. There's no reason why we must turn over 43 percent of the earth to to the animal agriculture industry, and there's no reason why we must destroy the oceans in order to eat fish and get three percent of our calories from it. And and so if we don't take that assumption that Al Gore makes, and that I don't want to isolate only Al Gore, but most of the leading climate spokesmen. Um, if we don't accept that assumption, then we make the the global analysis, right? And then we say, how can we make this system work? And the mm -hmm. way we can make the system work is to not eat animals, and then we get healthier. Right? Yeah. It's uh, it, when you start looking into it, and you realize how absurd the situation is. There is a solution staring at you in the face, saying, "When are you going to notice me?" And people are sidestepping it, thinking that, hey, I need, either they're thinking that they need to eat meat in order to get protein, which, by the way, I think 80% of, 85% of Americans apparently believe that, because that's how much it has been drilled into our heads through our science textbooks in school, that you have mm. to drink milk, otherwise you'll never get any calcium in your food. You know, this sort of nonsense has been propagated in our textbooks. And this is yeah. why... I love what Mayor Adams is doing in New York City because his food education roadmap is addressing children and giving children the correct information on how to eat right, you know. And then from the children, it will get to the parents too. Because the parents are going to say, hey, you know, I thought you need to eat meat for protein. And you're telling me no? And you say, yeah, I'm telling you no. I mean, even the protein... Um, the way we think of protein as, you know, uh, high quality protein and low quality protein and all this nonsense, right? You know, think about it. They are actually basing the high quality, the quality measurement on the assumption that the optimum protein that humans have to eat is another human. <laughs> That's what they're assuming, right? Because the protein matches exactly. Yeah. That's like telling an elephant the optimum food for an elephant should be another elephant. Yeah. The optimum food for a giraffe must be another giraffe. That's yeah. not how nature has built us. So how does an elephant get its protein, Silas? <laughs> yeah. Protein is in every plant food. It, yes. In fact, all amino acids are in every plant food. And this is an eye-opening statement to make, you know, all amino acids including and, the non-essential amino acids, are in every plant food. Yeah. And I'll actually say that maybe we should say that there's high-quality protein and low-quality protein because the highest-quality protein is from plants. Exactly. And the lowest-quality protein is from animals because the animal protein is high in sulfuric amino acids and particularly methionine, mm -hmm. which is linked to cancer. Um, and, and it's also animal protein is excessive. And the body can't store protein. So why do you want to get an acid load of, of protein that you're just going to urinate away? Right. It, it's, it's, not, it's not sensible. So um, uh, we know that, that it, these are just myths that the animal agriculture industry has peddled and governments have been complicit. Do you think that Al Gore and the other climate spokesmen who are peddling the myth that only fossil fuel burning is responsible for climate change. Do you think they know what you and I know and a growing number of other people that animal agriculture is really the leading cause? Or do you think they're just ignorant of it? No, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know what's in their heads. Uh, but I also know, I mean, he, he's been quite open about this. So Al Gore is, in that sense, he's been forthright. He has said he's trying to preserve civilization as we know it. Okay. 
Civilization as we know it is based on death, disease and destruction. It's based on death for animals, diseases for human beings, because that's how you make money, you know, extract money from someone, make him sick, and then you can extract money from him, right? And finally, it's destruction for the planet. That's the civilization that we have, and he's trying to preserve it, right? So he's doing something very rational based on his objective, which is to preserve civilization as we know it. <laughs> Right? Yeah. And so it's actually, we have to appeal to people saying, you don't want to preserve civilization as we know it, because it is killing us. It is eventually going to wind up in killing all of us. I mean, right now, you know, it's only a few thousand at a time, a few hundred at a time. You know. Then it'll be millions at a time, right? We're going to die if we keep doing what we're doing. Because that's the downward spiral that we are in. Okay, so the question is, how do you create an upward spiral? Spiral that promotes life. Spiral that promotes health, happiness, and harmony. And that's a different system. Okay, and this is why um, we, what we are talking about is literally transforming humanity from the current industrial civilization, which is based on death, disease, and destruction, and a lot of injustice. You know, it's built into the system. There is tremendous injustice for the animals. We know that. There is injustice for people who are at the bottom of this because they came late to the game. So literally, it's a Ponzi scheme that we are running, right? So people at the top of the Ponzi scheme are saying, you know, you came late, so you work your way up. And Now, what do you mean by came late to the game? came late to the game, meaning they were not the ones who who were colonizing people. They were the ones who were being colonized. Mm -hmm. Those who were colonized, you know, came late to the game. The game was exploitation. The game was winner, winner takes all. That's the game, right? So the game is all about, you know, how can I extract from nature? So we have created an entire economy that's based on animals and is based on resource extraction. Yeah, it's, interesting, it's interesting that there's one industry in America that is has the particularly egregious characteristic of exploiting child labor, even mm -hmm. today, and that's animal agriculture. They, you know, these meat processing plants are using 13-year-olds, usually who are not here uh, as citizens. Um, to uh, to go into the meat processing plants in overnight shifts and use harsh chemicals to clean the equipment and to get the blood off the floor and so forth at a, at a serious risk to their own health. They're exploiting children. Which industry does that? Only animal agriculture that I know of uh, does this so... Uh, so often and with so many uh, young lives at stake. Uh, it really is, uh, you know, the same industry that Upton Sinclair wrote about in the jungle. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's an archaic industry. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, well, now let's get to why I need a dose of optimism from you, Silas. Um, it has to do with the first, the pandemic, and now uh, the current state of affairs uh, in, in America um, and the world. Um, when the pandemic hit, I knew, as we all did right away, that it had to do with animals. Um, there were two theories about the pandemic. One was that uh, bats were brought into a lab in Wuhan, China. And the other was that bats were brought into a fresh market in uh, a meat market with live animals um, in uh, Wuhan, China. And either those bats were eaten by a pangolin or some other animal or were eaten directly by humans and that the disease spread from the wet market. 
That's what they call a wet market, not a fresh market. Um, and um, either way, it was from animals. And almost all pandemics are caused at that interface between humans and animals. And if the animals are kept in crowded, unnatural conditions, they tend to breed disease and to spread disease. And that's what happens with animal agriculture. So I knew right away, we've got a pandemic. It's because people won't leave animals alone for some reason. If we just left them alone, whether we didn't bring them from bats from a cave into a laboratory or whether we didn't bring them into a wet market, we wouldn't have had this pandemic that killed millions of people. But when the pandemic came, I became very conservative about it in trying to avoid getting sick and particularly to, to protect my wife. So my wife and I wore masks and I, I do most of the grocery shopping in the family. So for three years, for three years until about a month ago, a few weeks ago, I did the same thing every day that I went to the market. I would drive a few minutes to the store, get out of the car. I would hold my mask because there's no reason to wear it outdoors and I hate wearing it. I would walk into the grocery store. I would put on my mask, do my shopping, get out of the store, take off my mask and bring the groceries home. And over time, I just grew to hate that ritual. I hated it, but I kept doing it to protect my wife. Well, now the pandemic seems to be lessening. And uh, I was still some other people in the stores were wearing masks, but a minority. And I gave up the mask. I told my wife, that's it. I'm done with the masks. And I had one beautiful day when I went to the store, didn't bring my mask, did my shopping, no mask, came home with my food. It was fine. The next day, we started to get smoke from the Canadian mm -hmm. wildfires here in the Midwest. And now I have a new ritual, Silas. I drive to the grocery store. I put on my mask. I wear my mask outside till I get in the store. Then I take off my mask, do my grocery shopping, get out of the store, put on my mask, walk back to the car. And this is, I can't go out in the air now without a mask. Hey. And this is why I'm pessimistic because these fires are wildfires from Canada that are being caused by the drying and the heating of the climate. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's caused largely by animal agriculture. People don't see the direct link, but it's because people eat meat, eat pork, eat dairy, um, eat animal foods that were drying up and heating the climate. And now we have these wildfires in Canada. And now I have to wear the mask outdoors again, because People won't leave the animals alone. So tell me something to cheer me up, Silas, because I'm very depressed about this. Yeah, you are right, Glenn. I mean, that's what's causing this. And uh, at the same time, you know, we are a very unique species. We are like, you know, um, the mammalian bee. You know, so we go along with everyone else. A lot of us just go along. It's not that they have convinced themselves that they have to do this. No, they're just going along with because everybody else is doing it. Yeah. That is our greatest strength as a species. And it's also our greatest weakness. Because it's our greatest strength because when we do things together like that, we become really strong as a species. You know, think about it. No other species could have changed the climate of the planet. And we are doing it, right? So we have this, the power to change the climate of the planet. And now we are seeing that. You know, now we are understanding it. And now we are, uh, we are being called to use that power wisely. You can continue heating the climate, in which case we're all going to die off. 
not just us, but all life on earth can die off. Or we can say, if we have the power to heat the climate, we also have the power to cool the climate. And we can all go in unison that way. Right? So how do you go in unison in a different way? Well, make it the default. If you make the default, by default, you're kind to animals. By default, you're kind to the planet. By default, you're kind to your body. If you make that the default, and then you say, if you really insist on hurting yourself, yeah, you can eat it. So then you're not taking away anyone's freedom of choice, uh, except for the animal. Poor animal is still suffering, right? Um, but you can immediately I bet you if the default became vegan tomorrow, you will immediately shrink the animal agriculture industry by 80%. I believe that. Well, there are some places where we can use this concept of default, like in a college cafeteria or something, mm -hmm. where then, and that's happening in a few colleges where you have to specifically order meat or else you're going to get a vegan meal. How do we make the vegan diet the default in people's private homes? Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be through education, right? So, so this is why it's great that it's happening in colleges first, because it's like the students who are saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't want a dead future. So what's the point of me studying in college if I'm going to come out and discover that my entire planet has been destroyed? So they are asserting that you know that they want to live in a thriving planet and so when the students say like the students at cambridge university have said that they want all their uh, cafeterias to be 100% vegan not just default they want it to be 100% vegan because why the heck would you serve something that's going to destroy their future so we have to now continue to associate eating animals with destruction of the planet with with destruction of our health with destruction of our future we have to continue associating that and the may, the more we do that then people it's going to become a default meaning just like you know people just stopped abusing gays you know uh, because it became normal to to treat them as as members of the human family who deserve respect similarly we are saying you know the animals are members of this planetary family. They deserve respect. Okay? That's the fundamental um, argument, right? And what we are pointing out is that if we treat them as if they are dis you know, dispensable, they're going to go away. And if they go away, you're going to die. This is not complicated to understand. Okay, so uh, treating animals with respect is about treating ourselves with respect. You know, it is, it's not just for the animals alone, it's for us. You have to treat them with respect, otherwise you are hurting yourself. And people are beginning to see it. So humans, you know, Jared Bishop had this great line. He said, humans are slow, but they're not stupid. They're slow because it takes momentum, you know. There's a huge momentum going in one direction. It takes time for that train to turn around. Okay? They're slow, but they're not stupid, meaning they will know. Like, you know, see how fast people change their behaviors when the, when the pandemic hit. Everybody went indoors, you know, didn't want to go out. <laughs> right? So we all barricaded ourselves. That wasn't our normal behavior. And the wild animals all came out and said, okay, now this is ours. <laughs> These guys are all in cages and I am on the outside, right? <laughs> and so it doesn't take much for humanity to change behavior. That's the source of my optimism, okay? It's not optimism, it's really realism. Because if, you know, at some point when you realize you're being choked, and now people are beginning to realize you're being choked. In Indiana, you're being choked. This is why you're wearing a mask outside, right? In New York City, they're being choked. It's fires well, well, from Canada. Is... Yeah, but you're being choked. 
Nature is well, choking they're... your neck and saying, are you going to wake up or not? See, this is my fear. My fear is that of all the terrible consequences of a warming planet, mm-hmm. that wildfire could be the one that gets us first. Um, because, uh, you know, the rising seas are a threat, certainly. These heat domes that go over regions of the country and the world are a terrible threat. Um, uh, the, the loss of biodiversity is a terrible threat. There are many, many threats that come with climate change. But wildfires, they may be the first that make life hard to live. Uh, right now, I think the worst air in the planet is over Chicago. Mm-hmm. Maybe tomorrow it'll be New York. New York had the worst air on the planet a couple weeks ago, and then Philadelphia. Um, if this happens a couple days a year, then people in New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and other regions will suffer for those days, but they'll probably not change all their habits. If it happens 20, 30 days a year or more, life is going to start to be unlivable. You know, Mm -hmm. when you get to air quality indexes over 400, there's going to be so much lung cancer and it's going to be so hard to go outside and it's going to be so hard to live that, um, uh, you know, I think that, you know, it will be the beginning of the end. I, I don't know how we can reverse it. Our strategy that we believe in so deeply is to end animal agriculture and rewild as much of the planet as we can and protect the oceans. And so there are, uh, uh, what, how many billion hectares uh, that uh, science is a 2 billion hectares of, of, uh, of uh, land devoted to animal agriculture? Well, it's uh, 37% of the ice-free land area of the planet is for grazing, and that yeah. works out to about 14 billion acres. 14 billion about, acres. Yeah, 6 billion hectares or something like Six that. 6 billion yeah. hectares. Um, but <coughs> in the last few weeks, we've lost considerably less, but still a lot, something like 19 million acres of Canadian forest. 19 million acres, uh, really? I thought it was 1 million yeah. acres. 19 million acres. It was acres. 1 million when you sent me an email a couple of weeks ago. Whoa. <laughs> it's up to 19. Yeah. It's going pretty fast. Mm. And so our strategy, and remember, this isn't new forest. This is, these are grown trees. Um, so there's so much, wildfire is a disaster for the climate because the, the, all that carbon goes into the atmosphere. And at the same time, we are losing the capacity of those trees to sequester carbon dioxide. And at the same time, it's not good for the soil, which holds three times as much carbon as the trees. So wildfire is the opposite of what we need. We need more and more forest, more and more vegetation, And this is fighting against us. And at some point, it becomes a vicious cycle in which wildfire breeds wildfire. And that's what I worry about, because the more fires we have might mean the more fires we get. And it's a difficult cycle to stop. So that's why I need your optimism, Silas. Um, (laughs) You know, we're, we're like against a ticking clock here. Yeah, ultimately it's about changing from a current animal-based resource extraction economy in which we all congregate in cities to figure out how to extract resources from the planet to a plant-based ecosystem restoration economy where we are all congregating in order to bring back the forests that we cut and to restore the ecosystems of the planet, bring back the animals. We are there to serve the animals as opposed to exploiting them. So when we create that economy where 
So when I say economy, you know, basically it means that that's our purpose. So we change our purpose from extraction to restoration. So when you change, when you have a different economy like that, and you create all the um, uh, collateral that needs to go to create an economy like that, then you, we will be well on our way to creating this new human. This is why Judy Carman calls it a transformation from Homo sapiens to Homo ahimsa. Okay, it's a transformation. It's a birthing of a new kind of human. And birthing is always painful. It means you have to let go of the past and you have to embrace a new future, which the, our children are doing. You know, I mean, the younger generation is doing that. They're saying, yeah, we know this. there is no future here in what you old people have been doing. And they're asking us to help. You know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. what my granddaughter, my granddaughter is basically saying, hey, give me a world in which you don't do that anymore. Right. Well, as we try to transform to becoming homo ahimsa mm -hmm. and embracing the concept of harmlessness, we still have humans who are starting wars, invading Ukraine. We have humans who are doing tremendous amounts of damage, right. attacking democracies. And um, it is it is always a challenge to to sort of keep hope alive, uh, and that seems to me the the work that you specialize in. Uh, tell people about climatehealers.org and what people can find at your website. Yeah, climatehealers.org was started in 2007, and its purpose is to reverse climate change. That's uh, our organization is dedicated towards healing the Earth's climate. I'm an engineer, which means I look for solutions, and I specialize in solutions. And uh, this is why, uh, you know, we, we look at this environmental problem as how do you solve it? How do you solve it? And we have to keep focusing on our solutions and working on the solutions so that more and more people come along and say, yes, I can help you with that. Whereas the people who are fighting the wars, they're still in the old model. They're still in the stuck as homo sapiens, right? And so I say, uh, join us, come to climatehealers.org and join us. We have uh, several regular events that's on our calendar. You can look that up under For You link. And uh, we are constantly figuring out how to create this new way of living in which you're routinely helping the planet. And if if you are listening and you are you are still not yet transformed to being a vegan and eating healthy human food i've got a new book for you which is upside down there it is no there it is <laughs> called america goes vegan with over a hundred vegan gluten-free recipes by tracy childs um Silas, uh, your latest book is called The Pinky Promise, right? Correct. It's called The Pinky Promise. I don't have a copy right here with me, but look it up on what, Amazon. What is, what is The Pinky Promise that it's referring to? It's a promise that my granddaughter asked me to make to her, that we will stop eating, stop hurting her relatives, the animals, by the time she turns 16 in 2026. So that's November nineteenth, twenty twenty-six. That's her. So birthday. we got a little more than two, no, three years. Right. A little more than three years to reverse this. Yeah. To create a vegan world for her. So a largely vegan world, meaning more than half the people are vegan in um, developed countries. So that's the goal I'm using. And right. I think well, it's I said happening. you're an optimist, so I'm right there with you. <laughs> Yeah, we have to do this. You know, I mean, come on. How 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 much longer can you keep wearing masks outside, right? As you're doing now. Yeah, we have to yeah. do this. Yeah, but the the I hate to give yet another dose of pessimism here. But even if we, even if we uh, get people to transform, some of this is baked in for a period of time. So uh, a vegan world won't stop the wildfires immediately. Is that right? 
Well, you'll have to, you'll be bringing back new trees. So you have to grow more than is being destroyed, you know. And right. remember, as you pointed out, it'll be like six or seven billion hectares or 12 billion acres that gets freed up and 19 million acres are burning. So it's 19 million versus 12 billion. There's a lot of land available for us to heal the planet. So let's let's end on that note of optimism. If by your granddaughter's sweet 16 birthday, we have a largely vegan world, three years time. Yes. Um, how quickly will that start reversing the problem? Immediately. 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 It'll start sucking down. You will see it literally happening in the atmosphere. Okay. Really? So, so it, it isn't it isn't the case that some of the 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 the, the global warming is baked in and will continue for another ten or twenty years? That's uh, that's all in the modeling. You know the way they model, they say this mm -hmm. is part of the natural cycle. I'm not going to look at it, and I'm only looking at the human cycle. Right? That's how they model it. And I'm saying the natural cycle is part of the same. It's the same cycle. Okay. So basically, the Earth is breathing in and breathing out so much more CO2 than we are burning from fossil fuels. Okay. So all we are doing when we release that land back to nature and start helping nature is that we are increasing the Earth's lung capacity. And if, if you just increase her lung capacity by 10%, she will start reversing it right away. Wow. That's the All beauty right. of it. I, I told you Silish would give us a dose of optimism, and he came through for us. So thank you, Silish, for joining us today. Find, find Silish at climatehealers.org. I could be found at glennmerzer.com. And please, if you're not vegan already, it's way past time. It's time to go vegan. Thank you so much. This has been the Glenn Mercer Show, where everyone listening turns vegan, regains their health, and annoys their friends and relatives. Find us on YouTube at the Glenn Mercer Show and across all your major podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe.